excited to be here this morning to be talking to you. I am excited to be celebrating the 23rd pastoral anniversary of Bishop. And I am also excited to be digging into the scripture with you this morning. Um, we'll be starting in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. That's Matthew 25, 31 to 46. But actually, before we get into the scripture, I have a story for you. And this is actually the story of how I met Troy, which ironically, with your introduction, um, happened on a short-term mission trip. So Troy and I went to the same church in Berkeley, California, but we had never met each other because we went to different services. Sort of like half of you here who wouldn't know people from the 1130 because you only come to the 830, sort of like that. So at any rate, we actually got to know each other on this missions trip. Our church sponsored a trip to Ecuador, working with Habitat for Humanity. So we were literally spending all day digging holes in the dirt. I think there's actually, hopefully, yep, there we go. So there's Troy standing in one of the holes that he dug. So we were gross and sweaty and dirty and when you're kind of into someone in that situation, and you think that they might be kind of into you, that's divine intervention. <laughs> so at any rate, things are going well. We're, you know, hanging out, getting to know each other. We talk for hours on the way back on the airplane, because when you're the team leader, you can organize where people sit on the airplane. <laughs> oh, did you end up next to me? That's great. So at any rate, everything's going great. But there was a problem. You see, 11 days after the trip ended, Troy was slated to move to Boston to start his job as a postdoc. 11 days. There could be no, oh, well, let's wait and see how things develop. I felt a sense of urgency because I knew that his time in California was coming to an end. And I knew that there were things that needed to be said. So I did what every dating advice book will tell you is a terrible idea. I poured out all my feelings in an email <laughs> that I sent after midnight. <laughs> now, as you can see, many years later, it has all worked out. <laughs> and for that, I am a very thankful woman. But I think about the urgency that I felt when I knew that his time in California was coming to a close and the way that it made me think about what was important to me. And I also think about Bishop and the urgency that he talks about with every passing pastoral anniversary. And in the same way, I think about Jesus and what it must have been like for him those last weeks before the cross. 
Jesus had come into the world to teach us what it meant to love and to save the whole world. His time on earth was coming to a close. He had only a few weeks until he would be facing his crucifixion. What did he think was most important to tell us? What did he want to make sure that we knew? This morning, we're going to look at two passages in Matthew. And these two passages happen just before Jesus had his last supper with the disciples. And I'm particularly interested to look in the book of Matthew because scholars surmise that Matthew was written particularly for the Jewish community. It has good news for everyone, of course, but it was written in a way that referenced the Old Testament, made reference to Jewish customs and Jewish traditions, because you see, Matthew didn't want the Jewish people to miss out on the fact that Jesus was their Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But Matthew knew that sometimes religious people can think they know all the answers, and they might miss it. So, as a woman who seeks to know and love God, and maybe sometimes thinks she has all the answers, I know that Matthew wrote this, from put this together in here for me. So, right now, I'm going to ask my reader, Lydia, to come forward. And as I do, um, I'm going to set the scene. So, it's Jesus' last week of ministry. He is in Jerusalem with his disciples. Um, he is going full force, clearing out the cheats, the liars, the, and the temple. He's getting rid of all the people that aren't doing what he wants. He is healing and teaching at every turn. He is being questioned. His authority is being constantly questioned by the religious leaders. He knows this is it. He's reaching his final days. So what does he tell us in the final parable that Matthew records. Here it is, folks, the big climax. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a separate shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing. When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. 
I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were, refused, you were, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So, throughout history, Jesus has a way of setting before his followers two straightforward choices and letting them decide which way they will go. Two masters, two roads. And again, here, he is giving two choices. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? There's not a lot of gray area. Jesus isn't given a lot of wiggle room here. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? So let's go back and look at the opening phrases of this parable. If we can, is it possible to get on the screen the first part of the beautiful? So, but when the Son of Man, and that's Jesus, comes in his glory with all and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne. That is a beautiful image of Jesus in his glorious reign. Excuse me. He is Lord of lords. He is over all. All of the nations are gathered before him. People of every color, of every creed, of every culture. And then he says in verse 34, you'll notice that he refers to himself as king. Now, we refer to Jesus as king all the time. So that might not really stick out to us. I think we sang it 10 times this morning. But this is actually the only place in all of the Bible that Jesus gives himself that title. He is drawing himself up to his full stature. He is communicating, I am king of kings and lord of lords. I am ruler and judge over every nation. And in that time, he uses all that power and all that grandeur to tell us, I am getting behind the poor and oppressed. I am standing with the forgotten. I am one with the least of these. So as Christians, some of us have some kind of preconceived, I don't know, ideas, stereotypes about what that final judgment's going to look like. So, you know, we imagine, we imagine Jesus there and like, okay, Jesus was my savior, but then there's, what are the questions? Like, did you kill? Did you steal? Did you, were you faithful to your spouse? But according to this parable, the question that affects all of eternity is how did you love the least of these? So the Greek word for least is ilahistos. Took me a while to be able to say that. So ilahistos refers to the least, and it can be the least in size, but it also can be the least in importance, in authority, in the estimation of others, in rank and excellence. Can you take a look at that list and think for a minute, who does society label as the least? Looking at that list, who do we make the least? Because 
whoever it is, Jesus is saying, look, I am the ruler and judge of every nation. And I am siding with those who have no power. I am all in with those on the bottom of the pile. And I'm calling you to do the same. Talk about a revolution, people. Forget about upward mobility. Forget about climbing your way to the top. Jesus is calling his disciples and his followers to celebrate those at the bottom of the food chain. He calls us to a radical generosity. Generosity in spirit, in life, and in worship. A few weeks ago, Sister Regine talked about Jesus as the way. And that he shows us how to live. And this is another example of him living out what he calls us to. Jesus healed. He listened. He loved. He gave. He did these things when he was tired. He did these things when he was rested. He did these things when he was misunderstood. He did these things when he was understood. He did these things when he was thanked. He did these things when he was forgotten after he had healed. He does these, Jesus shows radical generosity in every circumstance. And in this passage, he is calling on us to extend that love and generosity to the hungry, the poor, the prisoner, the sick. His heart of hearts lies with those who are excluded and left out. Those who are on the margins. Justice and generously serving the least of these are non-negotiables for Jesus. That is clear in this parable and the Bible as a whole. So in this parable, we've already looked at the king. Let's take a look at all the people. So there's this huge group of people from every nation, and they're gathered before Jesus. And the way that all of them say, when did we see you? And what I read as a puzzled tone makes me think that they knew Jesus and they were pretty confident that they would recognize him if he came their way. But the people are divided into two groups, blessed and cursed because of how they led their lives. Now that might lead us to believe that the cursed people were like, killing and stealing and lying and doing all these things. But that isn't what it says. It mostly says they're cursed because of what they didn't do. They were probably comfortable at home, taking care of me and mine. So, you see, this isn't the first time that non-negotiable justice comes up in the Bible. We serve a God who is passionate about justice. In Ezekiel 16:49, God explains what the sin of Sodom was. Where's she going with this one? The sin of Sodom was that she and her sisters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Ouch. I read that description, and I have had times of seeing myself in all of those adjectives. Arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. 
And the Bible does not stop there. There are over 2,000 verses involving poverty, physical oppression, and justice, and the redistribution of resources. So what does this mean for us, church? It means that we roll up our sleeves and we get in the muck and the mire. We throw our lot in with Jesus. And we live lives of radical generosity. Like the little boy who faced the 5,000 was like, God, I don't know what these little loaves and fishes are going to do, but take them. That is what we do. So in this parable, as we know, Jesus is calling us to love and serve the least. But that doesn't always look the same. So Jesus interacted differently with different people that he met. And in the same way, radical generosity is not a one-size-fits-all. But if we study Jesus' model and we look at his word, we can draw some conclusions. So one, it will generally involve relationship. Two, there will be joy in the journey. Three, it almost always gets messy and you may get stomped on. And four, Jesus is in the midst of it. One, we serve a God of relationship. Sorry, one, it will generally involve relationship and we serve a God of relationship. When he wanted to draw closer to us, He put on skin and came down to be with us. (laughs) Jesus loves people regardless of the social norms. He probably should not have talked to the woman at the well, but he did it anyway. Nobody was hanging out with the demonized man in Mark 5, except Jesus. And then, of course, there's all the lepers that he wasn't supposed to touch, but he did that anyway. And he didn't just touch them. He touched them with love. And even the disciples, Jesus poured three years into his relationship with them, knowing that one of them was going to betray him. Jesus loved people. And he calls us in the same way to be with people. So when we look at this parable, there are parts of it where Jesus is clearly calling us to be radically generous with our material wealth food, clothing, drink. But in other parts, and that is good and necessary, but sometimes in addition to a handout, what people need is someone to walk through life with them. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, those are all acts that require being with someone and getting to know them. Notice it doesn't say, I was sick and you healed me, or I was in prison and you set me free. We're not called to do the saving. That's God's job. We are called to be with people as they journey through life. So my mom lives out radical generosity by sharing her life with teens and young adults who are transitioning out of gangs in California. She met most of them while she was working as a um, chaplain in juvenile hall, and some of them, many of them, are still in prison. Now, society as a whole has generally written these kids off. 
gang members do some really horrible things. But my mom hears story after story of the unfathomable pain and abuse that these kids suffered, mostly at the hands of their own families. Because she will listen, they share with her the shame that they carry for the things that they have done. And she gently walks with them through it, offering them the hope of Christ. She's not there to fix them. That's not her job. Only the great physician can do that kind of work. But she also can't walk away and ignore them when she is aware of the brokenness that they live in. One time she said to me, you know, as Christians, we like to throw around phrases like Christ is light. She said, I had no sense of the depth and reality of that phrase until I experienced the darkness that so many of these kids live in. So my mom has seen the transformative power in being in relationship with the least of these. Which brings me to the second point, the joy in the journey. When I was talking to my mom about giving this sermon, she said, don't forget to tell them about the joy. I said, okay. <laughs> because she knows firsthand that despite the challenges and despite the disappointments, there is great joy and fulfillment and living out God's word with the least of these. Uh, up on the screen, hopefully, there is a picture. This is my mom with Jose. Now, Jose was a drug runner for the Mexican mafia. Um, after a terrifying near-death experience, he believed that he was possessed by Satan, and the very real voices in his head told him that he was beyond saving. For six years, my mom has mentored him and helped him get to know Jesus. And while Jose is still on a journey, as we all are, they have witnessed God's miraculous power. Jose has walked away from drugs. He has gotten to know Jesus in a very real way. He's walked away from gangs. He no longer hears the voices in his head. Through Jesus, he has experienced dignity and self-worth. Now that church is worth a shout. No one can take the joy and the awe that my mom experiences in seeing Jesus meet and heal people who thought they were beyond saving. So, as Elder Anita preached last week, Jesus tells us that he has come to bring us abundant life. Now, abundant life is not about the accumulation of more stuff. And it's certainly not about just filling our lives up with a lot of activities that make us feel important. This is me preaching to myself. Abundant life is a life that's rich in love and brings glory to God. It's a life that fills us to overflowing like no earthly thing can. Jesus will take his sheep places and introduce them to people that they never would have met otherwise. We experience God's goodness in big and small ways. As Father Greg Boyle, who works with gangs in L.A., said, I want to be prophetic and take stands 
and stand with those on the margins. And I want to laugh as much as I can. Amen. Jesus knows how we can get abundant life, and he wants us to have it. And part of the way we get it is by being radically generous sheep. So in our church, I have experienced folks living out this generosity with joy. I am in a small group with some serious sheep. Week after week, I see how they lay down their lives for the kingdom and for the least. In this one small group, there are four families who have adopted, either officially or unofficially, welcoming children into their homes, and two more families who are considering adoption. There are those that have fed the hungry, sewed quilts for refugees, housed the homeless, poured resources into getting the gospel to the least of these on the other side of the globe. I could go on and on. We have had a lot of celebrations seeing God's faithfulness in this group. But I have also learned something else. That serving the least of these and being a sheep can be really hard. So, point three. It will almost always get messy and you may get stomped on. Because sometimes we get this rosy picture of, I'm going to love people. They're going to change. They're going to love me back and be so thankful. And it'll just be a giant kumbaya on the way to heaven. And that is a lovely idea. And occasionally that happens. (laughs) But more often than that, it's a little more difficult. So... And I've seen this in my small group. In my small group, yes, we've celebrated and rejoiced many times, but we have also prayed and fasted and wept over betrayal, over broken relationships, over people that we loved and loved and loved who did not or could not love us back. We've spent time in psych wards and hospitals in therapist's office, in court. Um, we have had our motives be misinterpreted. We've been told that all the problems are our fault. And we've been accused of any number of terrible things. Loving is a messy business. Beautiful, but messy and complicated. Speaking of beautiful, messy, and complicated... In our family, we have tried to live out this parable in part by welcoming two new children into our family. So for those of you who don't know me and my family or maybe don't know our whole story, Troy and I started uh, 2017 with two kids, Lydia and Peter. There they are. Always that smiley and cute. (laughs) Then in September of 2017... Jordan came to live with us. And we hope that Jordan's adoption, Jordan's waving to you all back there. <laughs> the, uh, we hope that Jordan's adoption through the Department of Family and Children will be um, finalized sometime this summer. Recently, Anaya has started staying with us two nights a week. 
She unfortunately could not be here today because she's not feeling well, but she's normally at church with us also. So I love my sometimes crazy new family, and I thank God for them every day. We have a lot of great times and celebration together. But this has not been an easy season for us. Honestly, it has totally and completely kicked my butt. So we are trying to meet the very real needs of four kids, some of whom have been through a lot of change and transition. And to those of you who have four or more kids, Jenny, wherever you are, God bless you. I think there is a special place in heaven for you. But I digress. So because we are an adoptive family, in addition to the needs of the children, we are also dealing with the opinions, demands, and insecurities of various biological families. It is so hard. The first time we had all the kids together for an extended period of time was April vacation. We took them all to my parents' house in California. The first day in was total chaos. Troy looked at me at the end of the day, and he said, we are in over our heads. And I concurred. (laughs) The second day, I was done. Yes, I said that on the second day of a 10-day trip, I was done. I was cranky and impatient and angry and frustrated and snapping at my kids. I said something mean to Lydia and made her cry. And it was like the worst kind of parenting where I found her in the other room crying quietly 10 minutes after I had been so mean. It was awful. I was ashamed of how I was acting as a mother and I knew that I was at the end of my rope. But thankfully, church, thankfully, We serve a God who loves us and knows the real us. He is not big on us pretending that we have it all together. He actually appreciates the hot mess. The message version of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 starts, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. And that morning, as I sat on my bed crying, wondering what we had gotten ourselves into, and listening to oceans on repeat. (laughs) That song can get you through a lot of stuff. (laughs) I knew that that's how it was going to have to be more of God and less of me. I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus did meet us there that week because that's what Jesus does. He shows up. And it got a lot better. We ended up having a great week together as a newly formed family. There were memories made, there was joy, there was laughter, still some chaos. But overall, it was a wonderful week. And I would love to say that it has been smooth sailing since then. But friends, this is real life. So one thing 
that loving the least of these and people on the margin has reinforced for me is that hurt people hurt people. So just the other night, after a particularly trying day of feeling beaten down, I talked to a couple members of my small group and I said, I'm done being a sheep. I want to be a goat. (laughs) Occasionally I'm prone to dramatics. But here's the thing. I don't actually want to be a goat. Because while this season of my life has been challenging and at times painful, it has also been beautiful. And I have experienced Jesus in ways that I hadn't before. Because Jesus is in the midst of it. Point four, Jesus is in the midst of it. And this is what he tells us in this parable, right? If you look at the parable, it says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. It's not for me. It's actually to me. In some mystical, inexplicable way, Jesus is right there in the midst of the situation with us. When we love and serve the least of these, we love and serve Jesus. He is the top and the bottom. He is the ruler and judge and the least. I can say firsthand that this has been true for me. Instead of relying on my own strength, I have to rely on his. And when I rely on him, he comes through. During this process, my own sin and need for forgiveness, like that morning in California, has become more apparent to me. And slowly, he is peeling away some of my people-pleasing tendencies and my desperate need for approval and control. And it hurts, because I really like praise and approval and control. But juxtaposed with my great need, I am also tangibly experiencing his radical generosity of love and grace. It is a love that covers us. It is a grace that says, I know you don't have it all together. I don't expect you to. Come and lay it at my feet. I invite you to be with the poor and the broken so that you can be with me. Because in the end, it all comes down to being with Jesus. Loving the homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, the mentally ill are ways that we worship Jesus. By generously loving them, we generously love and worship him. Which brings us to our final passage of scripture. Peter, come on up. So this is um, about a woman who generously loved Jesus, the woman who brought the alabaster jar of perfume to anoint Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 16 through 3. Now while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But but when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum 
and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. So this woman was not following any social norms, which do you notice the pattern? This seems to be like a thing for Jesus and his followers, ditching the social norms. So forget climbing the social ladder. She's going into the home of a man. It says Simon the leper. Now it doesn't say whether Simon had been healed or not, but either way, I'm thinking he was probably pretty scorned by society. Doesn't say she was invited. She shows up anyway. The disciples are mad at her because they feel like this expensive bottle of perfume that she used should have been used for the poor. Um, and also just sort of to emphasize the expense, alabaster jars, they didn't come with a little stopper at the top. Like it was sealed. So when you use the alabaster jar, you had to break the whole thing open, use all the oil or ointment in it. Um, so it was particularly expensive. Everything she did, kind of like that midnight email that I sent Troy, was ill-advised. And Jesus praises her. This woman is showing radical generosity in her worship of Jesus. She sacrifices her finances and her reputation simply for the opportunity to love him and worship him. During a week when everyone is trying to get something from Jesus, She wants to love him and express her gratitude. And don't you think the disciples were probably a little bit confused at this point? I mean, just before this, like the parable we just talked about, what happens right before, Jesus had made it very clear that he stands with the poor and the oppressed. So this woman comes in, and they're like, hey, Jesus, we got this. Look, lady, this isn't what we're about here. You should have used this to help the poor. You can see them just like standing back, shaking their heads, sucking their teeth. Right, Jesus? Right? But Jesus does not agree with them. In fact, he praises the woman for her generous act of worship. Because the kingdom of God does not function like the kingdom of this world. It is not an either-or issue. We serve a generous God who calls us to a faith born of generosity. There is no love the poor or love God. We're not working with limited resources. God's resources are so immense that it is always an and We live out radical generosity in our worship, which results in an outpouring of that same generosity in our lives. We don't function out of fear, worrying that there isn't enough. There is always enough. Like this woman, we too should be inspired to exercise our faith generously, even embarrassingly so 
And we do this because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. In the eyes of the disciples, what this woman did was short-sighted. She was only looking out for herself and not the poor. But it was actually the disciples that were short-sighted. Jesus had told them that he was going to be crucified. But they didn't want to hear it. They weren't ready to let go. This woman, however, not only loved Jesus selflessly, but her act of worship honored him and prepared him for what he must do next. Verse 12 says, By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. She was preparing him for the radical generosity that he would show to us by going to the cross. His body was broken. His blood was poured out so that we might be made right with God. His suffering, death, and resurrection was our good news that's referred to here that will be proclaimed in all the world. Jesus loves us so much that he gave his life for us. He loves me with my people-pleasing tendencies and my ugly pride. He loves you with whatever mess and baggage you bring to the table. And in his final days, when his time was coming to an end, he tells us, you love me back with your generosity. Generous worship that's about me and you and not what's going on around you. Generous living that functions in an economy of abundance and not one of fear. And generous love for all, especially the forgotten and the pushed aside. If this is what Jesus wants, then I encourage you to figure out what it means for you to be a generous lover of God and people. God made you, you. So the ways that he calls you to love and give are different than what he calls me to do. Pray about it and ask God how and where he is asking you to step out in generosity. There is a great cloud of faithful witnesses who have gone before us generously loving and serving. Today, we honor one of them in our bishop, who was both a generous servant and a generous leader of people. He spent the last few weeks traveling all over Romania, ministering to people there. And we're glad you did that, but it's good to have you back. There are also many other saints who have led the way for us. And to finish today, I'd like to play a song for you. It's by a Christian artist named Sarah Groves, and she shares with us the ways that different saints through the ages have chosen to sacrificially and generously love. I pray that the song will inspire you as it does me, and after the song is over, I will pray for us. And now say a prayer that the song works. Lord, I have a heavy burden, it's all I've seen and all, it's more than I can handle, but your word, you shut up like a fire, burning in my bones, and I can't let it go, when I'm weary and overwrought, when so many battles left unfold. Silas in the prison yard, I hear the song of 
can't carry and cannot leave behind. It all can overwhelm me. But when I think of all who've gone before and lived a faithful life, their courage compels me. And when I'm weary and overrun with so many battles left unfought, I see the servant Moses in the Pharaoh's court. I hear his call for freedom for the people of the Lord. And when the saints go marching in, I want to be one of them. Amen and amen. I love that song. There are also a lot of beautiful references in that song. So if you were wondering about any of them, the missionary and the spear and his family and the girl and the brothel, there's so many. So anyway, feel free to ask me later. I would be happy to tell you. Um, so the song talks about saints who were on a journey with Jesus, figuring out what it means to love and serve him on that journey. And many of us in this room are somewhere on that journey as well. As we said earlier, we serve a God of relationship who knows and loves us and wants a personal relationship with us, even with all our mess and all our ugly. The relationship starts with a decision, a decision that says, I give up control. Jesus, I give it to you. Jesus, we're on this journey together. 